I'm Father Mitch Paqua, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the sacred writings through the lens of the apostolic tradition, just as Scripture says we should do. So, we'd love to have you be part of the show. You can do so by adding questions and comments by calling us. If you're in North America, you call one 800 221-9460. Outside North America, that number will not work. So you can call country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. You can also send us questions by email writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Today, we will take a look at the example of Christ's healing of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2 to scripturally answer the question of who has the authority to forgive sins. So this is a great passage. We will finish up um, chapter 3 in my book called Praying the Gospels, Jesus, Miracles in Galilee. The book is still available, of course, at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 52885. Okay, and so we are on chapter 3, and we are dealing with the third meditation in that chapter. Forgot to make sure my phone was off. Um, so here we are. This is, we're beginning with chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their own hearts, why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Remember last week, we talked about how Jesus said to the paralytic as he was let down through the roof, son, your sins are forgiven. Now the Pharisees are questioning in their hearts, they're not saying it out loud, but it's interior. And they consider this blasphemy for him to forgive sins. Um, this is, um, you know, something that is very much part of the, the Pharisee point of view. They don't approach Jesus with much faith. They see themselves as doing this critical thinking about him. And again, it's important that they posed their question. It's, uh, two questions. Why does this man speak thus? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the, especially the second question, who can forgive sins, that's a rhetorical question. Only God can do that. And this was something that uh, was very much part of uh, Jewish uh, faith, we can't forgive 
sins. Only God can forgive. No human can do that. And this is uh, with good reason. You know, this is not something silly. Uh, they have a very good reason for that. Sin is always, ultimately, an offense against God. The good God is the one offended by our sins. Therefore, it requires God to forgive the sins. That's a good principle. We have to remember that, uh, that God is the one offended by our sins. A lot of times people slip into a mentality thinking, well, sin is sort of a faux pas. It's um, sometimes politically incorrect, though with some sins, to call it a sin is politically incorrect. For instance, with abortion. That's it's very politically incorrect to consider abortion a sin against God who gave life to that child in the womb. So this is um, very um, much the thing that the society doesn't always understand, that sin offends God. They'd rather see it as a social issue alone. And, but... That's the, the Pharisees were absolutely correct in seeing it as an offense against God. But then only God can forgive sins. Now, this is something that is very worth considering at this point. I, in the book, I do a little sidebar on this issue. Because there are a lot of people who reject the sacrament of confession. Not only non-Catholics, there are a lot of Catholics who don't go to confession anymore. And some of them have theories against it. Uh, you know, they'll say that uh, they confess their sins to God uh, alone. They refuse to confess to a man as if it were the priest sitting in the confessional who's doing the forgiving. Um, now, we have to deal with this argument in a couple ways. First, we have to deal with the fact that Jesus our Lord claims to have the power to forgive sins. That's what he's doing in this passage. This also brings out something that is stated in the very first verse of the Gospel of St. Mark, where it says, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Christ has this authority to forgive sins because he is God made flesh. The Pharisees had no way to really comprehend all that had gone on. They didn't understand the incarnation. They didn't know about the virgin birth. They didn't know about the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. So that's something that uh, certainly limited their capacity to understand this. Uh, they didn't have any of that background. Um, and we do, so we can understand that Christ has divine authority to forgive sins because he is truly God 
who has truly become man. Okay? That's one point. But then, if he is God and has the power to forgive sins, we have to take a look at something else here. Because we see in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 22 to 23, when our Lord enters the upper room on Easter Sunday night, he said, peace be with you. And then when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, this is you plural. It's not you singular. It's humes. So, because um, Greek makes a distinction, as does Hebrew, between you singular and you plural. English doesn't. You have to get it from context. But in their language, you can see it. So he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And it's by their reception of the Holy Spirit and by Christ's commission. He gives them a commission to forgive sins or retain them. Now, quite frankly, most priests don't have to worry about retaining the sins. Most of the time, we simply pronounce the words of forgiveness. It may happen in a rare situation where somebody, oddly enough, confesses their sins, but somehow it comes out that they're not sorry. So that, that happens. That happens. But how is a priest to know whether he should forgive the sins or retain them unless people tell him and talk to him. We are not God. We cannot read the hearts of anybody else. So we have to be told. We have to understand by hearing from people what they did wrong and their attitudes on that. So here you see in John 20, verses 22 to 23, that our Lord establishes confession. He has the power to forgive and he passes it on so that the forgiveness of sins can continue to be administered. And I'm sure if you asked other priests that had the same, similar experience to my own, I don't remember what people tell me. I don't try to remember. I don't want to. It's not my, my goal isn't to get all the dirt because even if I know what you did wrong, I can't talk about it. So it's rather to hear the confession, to be able to help an individual, but then the main task of the priest is to say the words, and I absolve you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the main purpose. And it's not in my name, in the name of Pacquai, forgive you. That would be a mere human forgiveness. But I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit and Christ's commission 
to be able to hear confessions and say your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's key. And it's a sacrament that we need a lot more of. Another thing that sometimes happens, people say, well, I'm, I'm married and I don't need to uh, go to confession so much. Well, actually, that's, uh, I'd ask your spouse a little bit more about that. Uh, he or she might have a couple ideas about what you might want to confess that you don't like to admit to. The sins may change, but even when you're married, yet there, there's still various sins. They become perhaps more refined than they once were in youth. So then we can take a look uh, at this next verse uh, in Mark 2, verses 8 through 11. At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. Now, this is the next uh, section here, and it's very important. Um, we see that the doubts about Jesus that were raised in the minds and hearts of the scribes give us two bits of evidence of Christ's divinity. First, Jesus knew their inner thoughts. They hadn't spoken this, remember that. They hadn't spoken it, but their inner thoughts, he knows. And that kind of knowledge of the interior person is unique to God. It's hard for us to know ourselves. Very hard to know what's in our own hearts and minds. That's why people go to psychiatrists and spend hours and hours on a couch trying to search their own heart and find out their motives and things. But the Lord knows what's in our hearts. That's why you see in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Also, when King Solomon dedicates the temple, he makes a prayer in 1 Kings 8. And in, verse, in 1 Kings 8, 39, it says, then, speaking to the Lord, Lord, here in heaven, your dwelling place, forgive, act, and render to all those whose hearts you know according to all their ways, for only you know what is in every human heart. In Psalm 7, Verse 9, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. Again, knowing the hearts of people is God's ability and duty. 
In Psalm 139, verse 2, a wonderful psalm, it says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from far away. Just as Jesus did that here with the scribes. In Proverbs 17, verse 3, it says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. He knows what's inside. In Jeremiah 11, verse 20, Jeremiah was very strong on this principle. He says in Jeremiah 11:20, 20, But you, O Lord of hosts, who judge righteously, who try the heart and the mind, let me see your retribution on them, for to you have committed my cause. Also in 17:10, Jeremiah 17:10. I, the Lord, test the mind and search the heart to give to all according to their ways, according to the fruit of their doings. I think you've got the idea. You see in Jeremiah 20, verse 12, I'll sort of conclude with this one because it is a very important one in Jeremiah's life. O Lord of hearts, you test the righteous and you see the heart and the mind. The New Testament teaches this. The Old Testament teaches it. But Christ demonstrates it. Christ shows that he knows what's in the heart. And in my book, I have other passages. And we should take that very seriously. Because Jesus, our Lord, knew the inner thoughts of the scribes, he is giving evidence that he is God. And then the second proof of his divinity, and he puts it forth as proof, is that he can heal the paralytic. He says to him, you know, to, uh, that he can heal him. Now, this is certainly something that is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 35, beginning with verse 3, where it speaks to the Lord and says, strengthen the weak hands, Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So our Lord heals, which is something that God does, according to the Old Testament. So he gives those two proofs to demonstrate his divinity at this very, very early point. Later on, we'll see in the gospel that he actually, he takes on divine authority a number of times by claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. But here, before he starts to take that authority, even over the Sabbath, our Lord is showing that he is God by doing that which only God can do. Forgive sins and heal. Now, it's something for us to consider. This is part, should be part of a meditation on these verses. Think about how um, people who seek out Jesus the way this paralytic and his four friends did 
find in him a lot more than they initially expected. The, the five men, the, the paralytic and the four friends, were looking for a healing for the paralytic. That's what they're looking for. Because they want to help a guy who couldn't walk. But the man also received the forgiveness of his sins. That was not something he had bargained for at the outset. And in this way, our Lord goes to the deepest needs of his heart. Not just the outside need to walk and desire to walk, but interiorly. He, by healing that, he also at the same time heals the paralysis, allowing the man to get up. And this is a way that our Lord Jesus lets us see new depths of himself and inside of us. He wants us to have these depths. So it's good for us to ask the question, are we open to the great richness of what Christ has to offer? Are we open to that? Do we want to receive it? And we should ask our Lord, show us your infinite goodness. Forgive my sins and heal me. This can be a great way for us to pray as we contemplate this passage. We're going to take a break. We'll come back in a couple minutes and conclude this chapter uh, on the paralytic. So please stay with us. Welcome back. Um, this is the fourth and final meditation of chapter 3. And we are still dealing with Mark, chapter 2. And we'll start out with verse 12. And Jesus stood up, excuse me, uh, uh, and, and the man stood up, the paralyzed man stood up, and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So here we are dealing with another reaction. This is the reaction of the crowds. In this place, they are amazed at what Jesus did because they're not accustomed to seeing paralyzed people get up and walk. It's, it was something very new and distinctive. And so that's one thing. Secondly, in their amazement, they glorify God. They immediately let this turn them to focus on the presence of God. Again, just like the scribes and Pharisees, they also don't have any clear conception of 
Christ being uh, God made man. They don't really grasp the incarnation by any means. But they know that this is the action of God. And so they give glory to God for this. And that's a, a very, very important uh, and proper response. In fact, I would say that um, we need to do more of that. That's why we have the Gloria in the liturgy. We need to give glory to God and praise Him. I get concerned with a lot of our hymns that instead of glorifying God and praising God, they tend to focus on how we feel. And at times you almost think they're starting to glorify us. It's more about how great we are versus how great thou art. The hymn should remain as it was written, how great thou art, and speak of God's glory. That's a very important point. Now, the folks give glory to God. They're amazed, but they don't attribute divinity to Jesus. They don't recognize him as God at this point. It'll be even difficult for the disciples that finally Thomas will say, my Lord and my God, when he sees the risen Jesus in John chapter 20. But at this point, they don't yet have that much faith, but they have enough faith to be amazed and give glory to God. And a lot of times that sense of amazement at what God is doing is itself the beginning of faith. And the four friends and the paralytic are themselves beginning to find that faith. It's beginning to be a spark of faith that begins in this episode. And it still won't be without challenges. I mean, we'll see later in the Gospels that the apostles witnessed this, but that didn't help them on Holy Thursday. They still had a long way to go before they fully understood what was happening. But it's a start of faith. And something that each of us can do is take a look again at our own lives. Examine how your own faith began to grow. Consider that. What did you notice that began your faith in Jesus? Why did that start for you? And for many of us, it starts in childhood. But what was there about faith in Jesus that had that make sense? What happened in your own life? What did you later experience as life goes on. Life has lots of ups and downs. And sometimes there are disappointments in life. You know, that for most people, that's the case. And yet, we stayed within faith. Why? What kept us there? And, you know, as we began to understand more about God's nature, especially as the way sacred scripture reveals who he is and what he is. How 
does that help you better understand Jesus? For instance, what we talked about earlier in today's show, about knowing that God searches the heart and the mind. Only God knows the hearts. We can know the outside, but only God knows the heart. And so how does that knowledge about God help us to better understand Jesus Christ, our Lord? That's a very important thing. And a good thing to do as well is to ask yourself, is there anything in your life still that evokes amazement in you? Do you find yourself still amazed at what God does? What is the source of that amazement? What still continues to boggle your mind and amaze you? Reflect on that. Be like people in this crowd and enter into their experience by looking at it in your own life where you are amazed at what God is doing. And the proper response would be that of the crowd to go ahead and glorify God. There are lots of ways you can do that. You can glorify the Lord with a prayer as simple as the short doxology, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Simple, short little prayer. You may also want to pray from the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 100. That's another great way to praise the Lord and glorify Him. Something that I like to do every now and again is just listen to one of the truly, truly great musical settings for the Gloria. It might be something as simple as plain chant, but it might also be something like Beethoven's Misa Solemnis. Beethoven wrote a stupendous, stupendous mass using the words of our Mass. I don't think he was Catholic, but he used the words of Mass. And Bach, who was Lutheran, also used the words of Mass as a musical setting. And the Gloria of the Mass from Beethoven's Misa Solemnis or from um, uh, you know, the Bach's Mass in B minor. Absolutely stunning piece of work. And Mozart has masses, you know, others too, but those are two of my favorites. And to listen to that music and glorify God using that. And give thanks and glory to God for all that he's done in your life. The various amazing things that have occurred in your life. In that way, you join with the crowd and direct your adoration and praise and glory to Jesus our Lord. This is well worth doing. All right, we'll stop there and we'll take up the next chapter uh, next week. 
But now I have a questions. We have some of your emails, and we have a question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Good to have you here. Welcome. Welcome. And what's your question today? Uh, my question is, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, why did the Sacrament of Reconciliation go away, be ignored, or mm -hmm. be given up? Yeah. I, I think you, you have to start with looking at Luther. And you know, do you remember what sort of triggered his uh, move to put up the 95 theses? Remember what that was that triggered that for him? Something about the indulgences. Right. And where are indulgences used? In confession. So one of the most basic issues in the uh, Reformation was the sale of indulgences. And by the way, if you ever get a chance, you can see the pamphlet for those, the selling of the indulgences that it was a sliding scale. If you were very wealthy, you were expected to donate more. If you were, had less money, you gave less. And if you were poor, all you did was say a prayer and you still got the indulgence. Okay? So it wasn't like if you don't have money, you can't get an indulgence. No, they, they gave the indulgence. But Luther saw this as an abuse. And in fact, the church came to forbid the sale of indulgences. The money was actually being used to rebuild St. Peter's. St. Peter's Basilica had collapsed in about 1505 or so, early 1500s. So it collapsed with people in it. You know, so they, they got away without being hurt, but they needed a new building. So to pay for that, they you know, were, were asking people for donations for indulgences. That's associated with confession, and that led to saying, look, it's confession that's being abused, so get rid of that too. That was the issue. And, but then it went on as more arguments developed because, the, as I said, the church stopped selling indulgences. They stopped that uh, abuse and still had confession. And so um, then other arguments developed over time against I only confess to a priest, or excuse me, I only confess to God directly. I don't need a priest or want a priest, things like that. Um, another element, too, from Luther's own life, he had a real problem with scruples, too. So that, you know, he found confession um, a, a difficult experience because, uh, for instance, he uh, would study so much that he stopped saying his office, you know, the liturgy of the hours that priests are required and monks are required to do. And then he would say that altogether, like for days, he would make up for all the ones that he missed and just put them all together. So he became compulsive that way. And so, you know, taking that to confession and things, well, you know, fed some of his compulsions. So he found that unhelpful. But the ideology of confessing only to God, not to a man, um, that developed as time went on. Does that help? Good. All right, we have a, a caller too, Maria. You're calling from Florida? Yes. Yeah, what can we do for you? Uh, I just wanted to make the question 
uh, about uh, for for abuse and for abuse and and sexual abuse and stealing. Mm-hmm. And would they would people go to heaven if they have do confession eventually and everything that that would they yeah. go to heaven or would they go to hell? Okay. First of all, Maria, stay with me here. You you understand that you have to be sorry for the sin, right? Yes. I think I think we don't have her on. Okay. So so you um you have to understand, you have to be sorry for the sin you committed. And, you know, ask God's forgiveness. And in some things, that you, I think you mentioned stealing. If you stole something, you have to give it back. You can't say, I'm sorry I stole it and then keep it. Uh, so you have to give it back. Now, wait a minute. What about the case where the person I stole from, you know, say I stole some money, and that person's dead. Here's what you can do. Give, some, give that same amount to people in need. Give it to the poor. Put it in the poor box at church or to, to help out somebody else in need if you can't pay back the person you stole from. And then you also go to confession. Confession is there to, for Christ to not only hear your sins, you confess your sins, you say what you did wrong, and all you have to do is say, I stole and I was abusive and I said bad words, I took God's name, and just say what you did. You don't even need to explain anything. You don't have to go into all the details. And that you're willing to pay back what you stole, and uh, then Christ uses the priest's mouth to give those words of forgiveness. The priest acts in a way like a prophet at that point. He says, I absolve you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to trust Christ's cross. Uh, when we go to confession, we meet Jesus on the cross saying to us, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But you also get a chance to confess and put into words what you did wrong. And maybe if the priest thinks you need a little advice, he might give you that too to help. But it's to help you here and it really, you still can go to heaven, of course, if you're sorry for your sins. So make a firm resolution not to do the sins anymore, pay back what you stole, and just get closer and closer to Christ. Confession will be a big help for that. All right, let's take a little break, and we'll be back in just a moment, so please stay with us.
right before we get to our next uh, question, just want to mention that uh, tomorrow night on EWTN Live at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we will have a conversation with a musical composer, Eric Genuis, about ministering and reaching out through music to people who are shut out from society. Eric just recently completed his 1,000th concert for people in prison in Texas on death row. And he reaches out to them. and It's had a big effect on his own life. And uh, this will be a great program for us to take a look at. All right. So let us now go over to Anthony, who is in Florida. Anthony, what can we do for you? Good afternoon, Father Mitch. How are you today? And I'm well, thank you. What, what's uh, on your mind? Uh, well, it's on our minds. Uh, my wife and I uh, love you and we believe in you. And uh, Anyway, uh, back to this question that we had last week. Uh, love your enemies or your neighbor. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, how do you decipher... Uh, the, you know, to love your neighbor when you know your neighbor is an atheist, a demon, he does demonic things, translate this for us and help mm. us uh, to understand how to love your neighbor when you know possibly, but you're not God, so we, we really don't know if he is demonic, but um, it's very hard to love your neighbor. You try. That's one of the hardest things. I, I think one of the hardest. Uh, sure. Yeah, sure. uh, things God has asked us. And then at the end of the Bible in Revelations, it says, you know, I, I looked this up and there was 30, 37 different translations of the book, the, the, the Bible itself uh, last week. And uh, we, we were looking at that and uh, to find out that at the end of the Bible in Revelations, it says, you know, you should not change the words in the book. Uh, right. But there were so many different sayings and, and meanings. Yeah. And words. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very extreme where you have people uh, stating, you know, that we should be divided in this country and everything else. Mm -hmm. and how do you mm -hmm. love people like that and say, well, wait a minute, we're impartial and we want to love everybody and bring everybody in. Everybody has differences and everybody has ideas and they should be and they should have been uh, be able to speak about their ideas and okay. individually. Okay. Let, let me ask you this, Anthony. Now, first of all, the verse, love your neighbor, has another little clause to it. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Anthony, do you want people to forgive you when you do things wrong? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And this is something that we really have to think about loving our neighbor as ourself. And we need to apply both the silver rule and the golden rule. The silver rule is don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. And the golden rule is positive formulation. Do to others what you want them to do to you. Now, there are some people who have nefarious intentions. They really do. There, there's no doubt of that. 
Um, we hear about murders. And, you know, I have to admit, very often, my first instinct with um, when I see the, the, uh, an outright murder of a defenseless and innocent person, I, I want to pummel the person who did it. That's my first instinct. That's not my best instinct. In fact, you know, as I think about it, I, I can be reduced to their level by trying to do that. And I have to pay attention that my first instinct is not necessarily my safest or best. And I need to pray about how I'm going to react to somebody, whether it's a murderer or someone who has other very bad uh, intentions. So then, in that case, you know, as we meditate and pray on it, we can think of, you know, be, uh, let our Lord inspire us with other ideas. For instance, what would be for the good of the murderer? So, and A, the good would be to repent of murder, to be sorry. They, you know, have to be dealt with by the state, to be sure, because murder is something that offends not only God and the victim, but also the state. And the state has to deal with the murderer, to be sure. But what else do we want for them? And ultimately, it's their repentance. One of the things that I would... As I, when I think about such things, my next reaction is I would like to have that person in a glass booth where they can listen, they can hear, but they can't respond back to the people and have the relatives of their victim ask them the question, why did you kill my husband or my wife? Why did you kill my mom or my dad? Why did you kill my baby? Because we see in our cities, children are being shot as random people, fools running around with guns, you know, cocked sideways and acting like they belong in a movie. And they're killing innocent people just by letting bullets fly. Now, I'd want them to sit and listen to every member of the family and, who, and until they come up with an answer as to why they did this and an expression of deep sorrow, to hear again and again, if you have to record it and pray, play it for them every day so that they understand the murder is not just something about getting out through the law or having a good lawyer or something. It's about people's lives. And I want them to eventually grow in having empathy for other people because oftentimes they're sociopathic and incapable of any kind of empathy. That needs to be our goal. I want them to feel a real grief and an empathy with the deceased or whoever else is the victim of their crimes, whatever crimes they might be, and come to repent and not go around doing it again and again. So we have to seek 
what is for their good. That doesn't mean that we don't have to be careful. You know, when somebody is dangerous, you have to be careful of them. That doesn't mean you don't love them, but you do have to be careful because they have shown themselves untrustworthy in, in society. But those would be some of my reactions. And there's tough love that alcoholics and other people uh, have to have. But it still is a, a, a love that ho helps them to become better. We have another question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? I'm from Northfield, Minnesota. Good to have you. Yeah, I can Thank hear a little you. bit of that accent. Thank up you. There. So my question, you? my question has to deal with what we discussed about uh, confession. You make a, you prepare yourself to go to confessional. You ask God and the Holy Spirit to make a good confession. You say the the sins that you committed, but uh, let's say there are some sins that you forgot. Mm -hmm. Is uh, once you give forgiveness for the ones that you mention mm -hmm. in the confessional, do the other ones also get taken taken yes. care of? I learned that back in 1958 when I was preparing for our first Holy Communion that the, you know, if you forgot a sin, it's forgiven. Now, if it's a mortal sin, you forgot, uh, oh yeah, that murder, yeah, no, no uh, bring it to confession the next time. But it's forgiven, but you should bring it in so that, because there's also, you know, the, the help and the graces of that. But you don't have to make an extra trip just for that. Uh, but the next time you do go to confession, then bring that up in that confession and say, I've totally forgotten this, but I'm reminded now. Thank you. That's one of the advantages of being married, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing's forgotten. All right, we have another caller. Hello, Colette. Hello, thank you for taking my call. Oh, I can hear it in your voice too. You're from New York, right? I am. <laughs> <laughs> what can we do for you? I was wondering who, who decides, I don't know how to explain it. In other words, I, Deuteronomy 30 or something like that, Moses died, and God was talking to Joshua going into the new country, and he was telling Joshua, don't be afraid, I'll never leave you. Mm -hmm. And I know, I can't remember, but I know there's a lot of, a lot right. of promises like that. But God, every time I read the Bible, it's like God's saying, you know, I'm with you. I will never leave you. Yes, okay, that's come for me. But he's not talking to me. He's talking to the people. He's talking to Israel or he's yeah. talking to Moses or, you know, there's somebody he's talking to to reassure them that he's going to be with them. So how mm -hmm. do we know or who decided that God meant it for us? Because well, I know let he's me... not going to say, you know, Colette, I'm going to never leave you. I know that. But, I mean, how do we get these promises made that they are our promises. Okay, Colette, let me jump in there because I'm running low on time here. How about if it's Jesus Christ who assures you? Would you accept it from him? I would, it would, if I, would I accept it from him? Yes, yes. Okay, now here's the thing. Our Lord says in John's Gospel, chapter 14, I will not leave you orphans. And then he also says, 
at the end of St. Matthew's Gospel, Matthew uh, chapter uh, 28, that uh, I will that know that I am with you even to the end of the age. And he doesn't say it to an individual. He says, as we would say down here in Alabama, you might not say up in New York, I'm with y'all. <laughs> that it's you plural. I'm with you all until the end of the age. It is our Lord Jesus who guarantees that he is with you and that all these other verses that you are mentioning from Deuteronomy 34 and Joshua chapter 1 uh, and many other passages, the, uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, we can take those and apply them to ourselves, ourselves by, because our Savior Jesus said, and know that I'm with you until the end of the age. That is your guarantee and mine. And it's faith in our Savior Jesus that assures us of that. Okay, Colette? So yeah, don't be worried about that. And let me give you a blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And as you know, Mother Angelica started this network 41 years ago, and she was inspired by our Lord to have it brought not by advertisers, but brought to you by you. So we ask you to please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you. God bless. Mm -hmm.